This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 483. And the quote of the day is, learn to be thankful for what you already have while you pursue all that you want. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on? Nick Ruffini here. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and thanks so much for being here. If you've never listened to the to the podcast before, thank you. And if you've been here for a while, well, thank you too. And if you have been here for a while, do me a favor, leave a rating or a review on iTunes. That lets people know that this podcast is worth listening to, and it just it looks good for the podcast. Let's be honest. So if you can do that, I'd appreciate it. It'll take you about a minute. Just go over to iTunes, write a rating or a review. And also, uh, you know, you can check out all 480-some of these episodes, 100% free. They're free because of support from companies outside of Drummer's Resource, one of them being Music Pro Insurance. And I cannot stress enough the importance importance of getting your gear insured. You can insure up to $12,000 worth of gear for about $150 a year. That's like one gig's pay to insure your gear up to $12,000. You can you can go higher than that as well. And you've seen the horror stories of people getting their cars broken into or their, their trailers broken into when they're on the road. Do yourself a favor, protect your gear. It's $150 a year for $12,000 worth of gear. Check them out. Go to Music Pro Insurance. .com. That's musicproinsurance.com. I cannot recommend them enough. So let's get into this conversation. This is with my buddy, Chris Kulos. And I, he and I have been buddies for a long time now because I had him on the podcast a few years ago. And I've been a, I've been a fan of his band, uh, OAR, since, I don't know, the, the early 2000s. And we actually played a couple shows together. I'm trying to, I can't remember when and where, but I'm going to find the uh, the flyers. I think I have them somewhere. Anyway, long story short, I had him on the podcast a long time ago, and we've just become buds ever since. And now I wanted to bring him back because he's since released two records with his band since I've had him on. And also, rather than doing a lot of backstory, we talk about how they, how OAR has managed to keep a career going for 20 some years and a successful career. They're playing, you know, all across the country it, at big venues. And it's one of these bands that, you know, I mentioned in the episode may not be at the, you know, the, they're not the Beyonce or the John Mayers, but like, they're killing it, and they have a, a they have a great f- career. And we talk about sustaining a career. We talk about gratitude in your practice. We talk about a lot of great things. And uh, I'm just glad to have them back on here. So let's get back into it with my man, Chris Coolis. Chris, welcome back, man. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me back, dude. It's been a long. It's been a while. It's been a few years. Uh, It doesn't feel like that long ago for me because I listen to the podcast still all the time. And I, you know, I I I catch up with you on the road. Yeah. You know, at least once or twice a year, we catch up Mm -hmm. and cross paths wherever we are. Our love has blossomed over the years. It's beautiful. It is. It is is a beautiful love affair that we have. So um, there's so much to talk about, man, since the last time you were on. You got, I mean, you guys, you put out two records since you've been here. Wow. That's right. Yeah. And you had a baby. And I had a baby. She's going to be two. Well, next your wife weekend. had a baby. You didn't have. No, I mean, unless not you, even. 
If you did that, that's some. We should talk about that because that is some. That's, <laughs> that's impressive. Um, no, I, I I agree with you. When people are like, "We're pregnant," no, she's pregnant. <laughs> she is. You're just there. Mm-hmm. You're just there to be supportive. Um, so yeah, I mean, you had had a baby. Two records came out, and the thing that's that has always impressed me about you guys is just the staying power of your career. You guys have been doing it since you know the '90s. It's not hard to keep – I mean, it's not hard to uh, – or it's not easy to keep doing what you guys have been doing over the years successfully. And I think there, I think there's a big misconception – at least I had this when I was younger, that I was like, you're either, you know, Justin Timberlake or you're playing in a bar and you're making no money and there's no in-between. But then once I – the more, you know, I started doing this podcast, I realized there's all of these bands that are – that have been around for 20, 30 years, that tour heavily, that are have very successful careers and may not be on the, the cover of Billboard magazine and may not be, you know, as big as Justin Timberlake and but are but still have these like really successful careers. Um, what do you think has been some of the like the keys to your your staying power and the keys to the success that you guys had over these years? You know, well, a few things. Uh, the first thing that jumps out to me is um, the there's like a foundation that we have as a band mm-hmm. that I think is special uh, because we started the band. We were friends before we even started the band as opposed to the other way around, which is way more common. Right. So the spirit of the friendship and this brotherhood and this family thing has, has really kept us – um, I, I don't want to, I want to say we've been, we've continued to build on that. So it's been over 20 years, you know, the spirit mm-hmm. of the band is that we were best friends before we even started, you know, and that kind of stuff carries through into everything. And it, right. maybe if that's what you're getting at and, and hopefully it comes across because it, 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 for us, it feels like it comes across in the music, you know, mm-hmm. comes across when we're on stage but it also comes across off stage, you know, whether we're touring, um, we enjoy hanging out with each other. We, right. after a show, get on a bus and watch stupid comedy movies. Um, mm-hmm. we hang out during the day. We now work out together as a group during the day. We, right. When we're not on tour, we have an obscene amount of, uh, like weekly and, and bi-weekly and daily conference calls, sometimes as a full band, or these two guys that are, uh, you know, running point on the new merch line, or somebody else and this guy that are working on the summer tour production and the design for the set and this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, or somebody else is working on, you know, leading the charge for artistic or the creative or new songs, and it's just we enjoy all like, you know, I, I our wives hate that it is a 24 hour (laughs) job where you have to be, you know, accessible all the time. But that's really part of what it is. I mean, it's become, it is our, it's our life. And, Mm -hmm. uh, we all live in different cities, which is kind of crazy to me because five guys all live in five different cities are able to make it work and be in constant communication and be able to be doing this, you know, like you said, since the nineties. So right. if that answers anything, I feel like it, that's it what this album is about too. We, we named this album, the mighty OAR, uh, that just came out, um, two weeks ago and it's because of that brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And wasn't the name came from, uh, who, who introduced you at Red Rocks? I was just, 
Oh, I, look at you doing your research. Come what on, man. Wikipedia. I, I am a, Dude, I, I love I am you. A pro- so, this is a professional uh, outfit that we got going on here. I don't know if you, you know that all or right. not. Very professional. I keep trying to prove you wrong, but I think, yeah, you got All right, you figured it out. I've got it. it was, it's all smoke and mirrors, man. Yeah. Uh, total name drop, Richie Sambora. Yeah, that's who it was. Yes. So um, Richie came out on stage and walked up to the microphone and said, give it up for the mighty OAR. And um, something about that stuck in our singer's head, like right away, just like, that's the name of the album. Nice. Um, and I think, again, it just kind of comes down to, you know, this, um, uh, I, I keep saying brotherhood. I'm trying to think of a better word so I don't sound repetitive. But it's, like I said, it's something that's, we've been building together a foundation, you know, on stage and off stage. And mm-hmm. it's, it's important to us. It's, um, you know, we love making this OAR thing happen together like all five of us it's just a goonies never say die kind Mm -hmm. of approach so um that's kind of that's 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 specifically where it came from richie sambora but what it represents is about that 20-year foundation sure the the thing that and i'm and i'm guessing here but the thing that i would imagine is that really uh like that's really keeping you guys going is the idea that one, yes, you guys were, you guys are best friends and you have been for so many years. And I think that that makes you guys keep your circle tight. Right. Cause I think that like you tend, you're friends with the, with the people who were like you. And I think that if you get into a band where this guy's not like you and this guy's not, then you start hanging around with different people that are not like you and you can get toxicity that comes into the band and things like that. But for you guys, you guys were friends beforehand, so I would imagine that the people who work on your production, the the people, you know, your tour manager, the people who's driving the bus, like all right. of these all people the behind the scenes are all are considered all part of, like, of that family. They've yeah, all been with us all, for right. ten or twenty years. Right. Yeah. Right. It's uh, it comes down to family as being so important. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our real life family that supports us so much we wouldn't be able to do what we do on the road if it wasn't for our family but it it it, it touches into why we surround ourselves with the same same people behind the scenes all the time because it's it's a it's a family we go out on the road or we go out and put together another tour and we we rely on each other in a way where when you know somebody's got your back the way you've got their back it creates a definitely a different dynamic than Mm -hmm random people that are together in a band because of because of the music they make you know right. it's uh, uh i shouldn't discount that because there's so many other there's the majority of bands you know try out for each other or put together or answer right. ads on craigslist or you meet somebody and then you you know you and two guys do your thing until you put together another band but not everybody in the band is always on the same wavelength and right. uh i think we that's our what as a band it's it's our biggest you know strength mm-hmm. i've always said that i'm i was always more interested in putting a band together and growing it to you know growing it ourselves rather than just being a sideman that gets hired to be put into a musical situation like you said there's nothing wrong with that but i think there there's more obviously there's ownership and i don't mean like from a business standpoint but there's more like ownership internally but also 
I just always felt more connected when I was helping write the tunes. I was part of the decision making, uh, you know, rather than just some just going in and they're like, okay, we're paying you 500 bucks, play this, here's the set list. And then when you're done, it's like, okay, bye, we'll see you, we'll see you next week. That's, and to me, I don't know, like that's where I think that's where the magic is. If you, if you were in a situation where, I don't know, something happened with OAR, right? God forbid. Would you, what do you, do you think you would start something else or do you think you would try to go out and be a higher gun? Well, I, to be honest, I've never thought about that because I'm so much, I'm, my time is being, let me answer it this and I'm, way. And I'm not, and, and just yeah. so we're just like, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm saying if, you know, in an other universe or something, right? You were just right. like, okay, we're not going to OAR. We're not going to do it anymore, right? We're, yeah. We've decided like, yeah, okay, that was fun. We're done. Now you're at home and you're like, okay, I still want to play. Do you start another band or would you be a hired gun? Like where is your, where is your, where does your heart lie? That's a really good question. I mean, I think what we're getting at is that I would be asking one of those two questions as opposed to, do I want to keep playing drums at all or change careers? Mm. Because I could be happy in either situation to a certain point. Okay. Um, if it's the right band or if it's the right uh, touring opportunity, some of my favorite drummers get to play um, as hired guns, whether it's on a, a small level where they're you know, first of three um, mm-hmm. on a big tour or something like that, but with a very up-and-coming artist. Or the guys you idolize, the Aaron Sterlings that, you know, hop around from touring with John Mayer to playing on every studio album, you know, Mm -hmm. that, you know, I I think you get excited to, you hear about Aaron Sterling playing on an album uh, or a few of these guys and you just, you don't even care who the artist is. You go immediately and listen to it. (laughs) So, I mean, right. So, um, I, yeah, to answer your question, I would want to do something continually to continue in music. That's where right. my heart is at, my passion's at. Um, you know, maybe I could. Uh, I really enjoy teaching, but mm-hmm. I have um, a, an odd schedule where it's a lot of stopping and starting. So I've sort of capped it at four or five students at a time. Um, and if I had a wide open schedule, I would love to have you know, a daily or weekly or, you know, students where that would grow to, you know, something that was more of a, uh, a regular thing. Um, and that, I I think that would be kind of cool because, uh, I I live just outside of Nashville and it's such obviously music city, but there's just a lot of, um, schools. There's a lot of school of rocks. There's a lot of, uh, colleges from the Belmonts and the uh, Middle Tennessee, you know, State University and private schools and recording schools. Um, there's just a lot uh, in the educational area that uh, that could be interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But these, are, you know, again, like you said, what if? I, the, okay, here's what I wanted to get back to. <laughs> when I was living in Chicago and the band was touring all the time and it was great, and my wife got a job offer at Vanderbilt and. We thought, let's give it a shot. We, we don't have kids yet. Who mm-hmm. knows? We If it's only a few years, we can always move back to Chicago or we can go anywhere. But let's go to Nashville. If I could be anywhere, why wouldn't I want to be um, You know where so much of the music industry is kind of going? So this For was sure. almost 
six years ago, yeah, 2013, we moved to Nashville and I thought, oh, how cool it's going to be to be able to take on more music work and, uh, you know, write and record and do all this stuff. And I met a ton of people and it's such a cool town because everybody seems to know each other um, and introduce you to people in a very welcoming way. And so you immediately meet a lot of people and you have a lot of opportunity. And I found that I had I never took OAR for granted, but it was almost like I just realized how fortunate I was to be doing what I was doing. Right. Because the guys who are come to town and don't have those opportunities, and even if you do have those opportunities, there is a hustle that you have to be doing 24 hours a day mm-hmm. to get on the radar, to get out there, to um, you know, to, to, to be a hired gun. Yeah. And um, and I just it, it just kind of relit a fire underneath me about how much um, how fortunate I was to have the things going on with OAR. So if anything, I've been working harder within my own organization, I think, than than not. But having said that, there's just so many fun things to do here in, in this town. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's I, opened up I, a lot of new doors. I got to imagine that it's easy at some point to sort of rest on your laurels a little bit, right? Like you've been doing this band for 20 years. It's been successful. And although I un- I know how much hard work you guys put into it, it's still like, I mean, you guys aren't into a situation where you're like, where you're scratching and clawing and everything is a grind, right? I mean, you guys have systems in place. You have, things are going well. You have a great fan base and all that stuff. So, and I, I by no means want to say it's easier that it's on autopilot, but mm-hmm. I can understand how, it would be, it's like anything. Like if you have a successful business, you start to sort of just get a little lax with things. Right. And then, then you realize like, oh, wow, there's, this is, this is an amazing thing. Like you said, you get this, this fire lit under you again. Did you feel like you were sort of, were you taking it for granted a little bit or maybe, and I don't want to say like not working as hard, but like, yeah, maybe taking it for granted would be would be a good way of saying it. Where you're like, the th- it's like it just you know that every summer you're going to go on tour. You know these things are are right. are going to happen. Well, you do. You, I, I think maybe I don't like to think I ever took it for granted, but you fall into your routine, right? And it's the next tour, and then it's it's a, the next thing, and then the next album you do your thing, and you go into you know this routine that you guys have. Um, I think if anything, it just sort of like put shines a spotlight in a different way and saying, mm-hmm. Oh wow, dude, this is, <laughs> this is, right. uh, you know, we, we, we started a band in my mom's basement and 20 years later, we're able to do it, um, full time and be able to continue to grow the band in a lot of ways. Right. Dude, I'm 40 years old and we have a song on radio. That was in the, like, you know, it just hit like the t- top 25 on hot AC. Like, yeah, I, this is the coolest thing ever and it makes us want to work that much harder yep yeah and I you know I, I've toured for years too and the, and sort of things start to run together and they sort of blur like you said it's like one tour then the next then the next and you're kind of like was that was that 2014 or 13 you know and things start to blur yeah. together a lot um, so for you how are you how are you approaching things differently now like when and what's your mindset when you go out on a tour is there obviously you you know you want the crowds to be bigger you want the shows to be better than than the prior one right but what else are you doing to 
one, keep yourself sane and to, you know, so you don't fall into this sort of groundhog day, but also like, is there specific things that you're, that you're striving for when you're on the road? Yeah. Um, you know, just on like the health side of things, um, travel is never easy. The -hmm. shows are amazing. Um, but the getting to and from shows, um, is not easy on anybody. And after you've been doing it so long that you don't know any other way of doing it, um, there's, there's adjustments that you, you need to make if you want to keep doing it. Um, and I, I think paying attention to what you eat and how, um, little or much you want to maybe drink and Mm -hmm. working out. It's all little, you know, life choices. I feel like you don't drink a lot at shows, do you? I don't as much anymore. And, um, I think it was more that like, I'd listen back to tapes and be like, Oh, I thought I was on fire. <laughs> it's this always the case, right? Like. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, who's that guy playing all those notes? Yeah. yeah. In the moment, you're like, dude, I am loose. I'm good. To- <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude, you can't stop me. Like, yeah. no, you can't stop me. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a bit of that and that fact that we torch so much that if I'm drinking every night or that yeah. has to be part of the routine – then what happens is like, um, you, you know, you just don't feel great the next day and that slowly starts to, um, snowball. Yep. And it's like, you know, I'm not over here like a behind the music story of, you know, talking about my, uh, being addicted to some, some pretty deadly stuff over here. We're just talking right. about having a couple of drinks here or there, which, okay. Uh, but still there's, um, repercussions for everything. And, um, I, there was definitely tours where I felt, you know, there was um, some some darkness there where you're just, you know, alcohol and also, you know, there's a little bit of depression and stuff mm-hmm. like that where kind of creeps into like, if that's going on inside your head, that's what's coming outside when, you know, when you perform a little bit. And right. um, anyway, we I don't think need to talk a, about too much of that. Point is, well, I think I like, it's, a, I do think it's important to talk about the, the fact that if you, if you find yourself in a position where you're fortunate enough to be on the road, then you you have to realize – like for me, I always felt like the road is not the real world, right? So you're sort of like – you have your responsibilities, but there's – you also have the door open to do whatever you want to do. So like you can get into all kinds of heavy drugs if you want to or you can drink a case of beer every single night if you want to. Like no one's going to tell you no. Right. Unless it's your yeah. bandmates that are like, hey, man, you need to slow down. So I, I think it's important to talk about, listen, if you're if you're on the road, one, you don't have to be drinking every night and you don't like it's not a party every night. You should be taking this, you know, seriously and, and not getting not getting all drunk every night. But also it's going to affect your playing. It may affect whether you get hired again. You know, it's like long term, if you're on tour for three or four months, by the end of it, like you're going to be, you're going to feel like complete shit, you know, and it's okay to like pass on the beers once in a while and and say, no, I want to get up early and go to the gym or, or whatever. First tour, you you may, you may not do that, but like, (laughs) yeah, you nailed that answer. Why? How about you ask the questions and you answer the questions. And I so, go in and do you I know watch, how much shit uh, I'm going to get. You know how much shit I'm going to get for the everyone's going to be like, you never let the guests talk. And because I get that a lot. So you'd like to talk, I'll, you know, come on, man. No, there's there's some awesome episodes where um, 
you, you're like you. It's maybe an hour, an hour and a half long, and you've asked two or three questions, and they're just going. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I normally um, like, and then sometimes yeah. I just interrupt everyone. And well, it was a great yeah. answer. Um, Is there anything else you'd like, like to ask me? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you pulling for in the Masters? Uh, I don't, I'm not a golf guy. That was a big. VJ okay. Singh is that a guy? <laughs> that, that's a, that's a guy, right? <laughs> I don't know. That's a guy. He's um, a golfer. Yeah, right? man. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm impressed. Out of all the people you could have pulled out, I'm impressed. There you go. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Okay. Um, so drinking on the road and drinking and on the road, the- but I also like to practice. That's it's right. a weird thing, but I kind of discover practicing later in my career than earlier. And so that kind of keeps me um, motivated and, and pushes me to, um, to not just stay fresh, but just, you know, not just as like a, a drummer, but as a guy in the band. I feel like, you know, the more I work on my craft, the better, um, you know, the more, the more the people in the audience will, will feel like the band sounds better. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Chris sounds better. You know, I right. think that's important too. Are you, um, are you, you're, you're doing a lot of shedding on the road? Yeah, it's, that's one thing that is pretty cool about some of the venues that we, uh, you know, the size of the venues where there's a, a enough room backstage that we have a little practice, uh, mm-hmm. room set up. So I've got a small break beats kit, uh, nice. with some of the low volume symbols from Zildjian, which is one of just the coolest inventions of all mm-hmm. time. Um, so I'm able to, to kind of get back there for a few hours every day. Um, and, and we actually have a whole setup too with, uh, you know, keys and some guitars and stuff like that to, to rehearse and write as a band if we want to. But yeah, you find me in there pretty much, um, you know, all day. Do you think that's what keeps, do you think that that's what keeps you fresh, not only in your playing, but like, are you playing these songs differently than you were five years ago or 10 years ago? Like, are you hearing them differently? Are you approaching them differently? Uh, obviously you're not going to completely change what you're playing, but intricacies and, and dynamics and things like that. How, are you, are you approaching these songs differently with like a fresh set of ears? I think so. I mean, I would say like the reason I started practicing a few years ago was because I was frustrated with my playing. Because I've been playing so many shows and the same songs over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't able to um, play some things the way that I heard things in my head. I couldn't necessarily execute it. Because um, I just didn't know how to. I, I right. didn't really – I didn't know um, the the fundamentals in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, and it wasn't about like throwing in some – you know fancy drum fills it was more about just like how can i execute what i hear in my head um so in order to do that i my beginning of my studies i sort of learned to read and write and um you know transcribe stuff so i i could see like oh okay so what we're talking about is a is a triplet versus you know straight 16th um Mm -hmm. or or something like that like before i mean it's weird to say but like i would start a drum fill and not really know where it was going right or how it was gonna you know i could fit it in because there i had a basic sense of music and i've been playing drums you know my whole life but i hadn't studied it to a point of being able to um 
see things in a certain way about music that would help me play music in, mm-hmm. in a way that was more musical and give me confidence. Right. And after a few years of that, you know, I don't think I'd be able to, um, you know, uh, sight read some crazy chart right now, <laughs> but I have a much better handle on that. And I've sort of shifted a lot of ways from, um, trying to expand my playing the way I think I might've been a few years ago with, 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 uh, I don't know, like I, a lot of people play out of the book syncopation, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some amazing things that you, you know, you can build up, um, the different rhythms and playing and, um, whatever the word is, but, uh, you know, changing their different services. You can play this rhythm as in a jazz context. You can play this at bossa nova. You can play this in a rock. You can play it with the kick drum. You can play it between hands and feet and you're developing Mm -hmm. your independence and you're developing your reading, you know, with that too. But I, I think, um, I got to a point where as much as I was doing that and getting better, I was still wasn't getting better on other sides of my playing. Um, when it came to just the 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 feel and the groove, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of things, and so um, more recently, I've shifted to um, listening and playing along to records. So underrated, um, man. It so is very underrated, underrated. and uh, you know you listen to podcasts and go, "Oh man, forget lessons, just play along to music." You know, play along your favorite <laughs> CD. And I, I come on, there, it's more to it than that, but there's so much out of that that I had been I don't want to say ignoring but right there's so much value to that there's so much value to that um and then the last thing I'll I'll say um, unless you want to talk more about this but the last I think important thing that on my mind is um and I continue to to take lessons and I continue to talk to drummers when I'm you know out on the road and I continue to give lessons to my students I get I you know um you know uh, by teaching, I think there's uh, another connection that I get on my end that's incredibly rewarding. Mm-hmm. But um, they say you don't really of, understand a topic until you can until you can teach it to someone else, right? Until you can oh explain it to someone else. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like I came across uh, dotted eighth notes in my studies, but then have to explain that to um, a twelve year old student for the first time. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> you know. If you can explain it a lot better, you know, if you can explain it correctly, all of a sudden, you know, oh, okay. Now I comprehend what's going on. Yeah. And then you go, oh, wait a second. I knew what it was, but now that I have to clearly define it, it mm-hmm. completely clicks. Completely. 100%. Um, I lost my train of thought, but there was – oh, you know what? I'm sorry. It was – I was going to say I took a lesson from Dave Elich, who I know you've mm-hmm. had podcast, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I went to him and I said, hey um, – I just am having difficulty um, – I can't remember how I said it. But basically, what I'm hearing back sometimes, I'll go and I'll listen to a show, and it's not what I intended to play. It's a version of it. How do I um, – you know – how do I connect? How do I – you know, what's the word? Uh, you know, basically looking at how do I uh, – play what I'm intending to play. Right. And the thing, so what, what you're hearing in your head, you're saying it wasn't coming out that way. Yes. So I'd gotten to a point now where I was able to execute the ideas in my head. Okay. As opposed to before where I was frustrated. 
So right. I, you spent a few years honing that. And I got to a point where I was able to execute what I wanted to be playing. But when I would listen back to it, it wasn't exactly. Oh, uh, like sonically, I, it wasn't. Sonically, what, it wasn't right. there. I got you. So it's like so, feel, touch, dynamics, yes. all that stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. So the exercises I've been focusing on lately are, in, in his words, deepening that sort of brain-body connection. Right. And he gave me some exercises to almost verbally beatbox an idea that's um, a measure long and then immediately play that phrase. Mm-hmm. And doing that over and over again, repeating it, listening back, uh, to me, I've grown so much just from this one exercise of, again, deepening that brain and body connection. And that's what I'm sort of missing. And I wouldn't have known to even ask that until I did enough studies to get to the point. It would have been a lot easier 10 years ago to (laughs) be like, here's what I want. Here's what I want to do. Let's focus on that. But it's not that easy. Even though this is another very basic idea, it's it's still, to me, fundamental. So I'm not talking Mm -hmm. about – playing in some weird time signature. I'm not talking right. about, you know, some some fancy chops that I'm trying to develop. Um, this is basic fundamental executing um, tonally, tone, tonal goals. Mm-hmm. Having my kick drum and my snare drum have these sounds in my head of what I want them to feel and sound like and the parts that I'm playing, even if it's a basic, basic drum fill, come across exactly the way I intended it to. And that to me is going to be a whole new lifelong challenge, but it's, it's, it's a new path for me where I feel like I uh, can continue to, to grow. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of times we naturally skip over those things because one, one, early in our development, we don't know that those things are there. Like we don't really understand dynamics or we don't understand where we're feeling the pulse or you know how our hands and our feet are interacting together. And then when you, I, I would imagine, you know, once you get to a point where you are in your career, you've sort of two decisions, right? One is it like, it's like, I'm going to let my ego get in the way and I'm not going to ask for help. And I'm, I, I remember I posted this thing the other day. It was like the, one of the biggest potentials I see in for growth is the ability to be like, I don't know the answer and I need help with this. So mm-hmm. you could have gone two ways. You could have, let your ego get in the way and you say, no, I'm a professional. I've been doing this for years and you know, I've had a, I've had a very successful music career and I'm good enough. Or you can say, no, I'm going to ask for help and I'm going to, I'm going to try to get better. And what I've seen is from doing almost 500 of these interviews that there's, we sort of, we, we learn it like this 35,000 foot view, right? So we have to like every day and you're, when you're young in your development, you're just like, you're getting the basis, you're learning, learning how to play beats and all this other stuff. And then you amass all this knowledge and then you have to go back and like fine tune everything. So it's like, okay, we built the house now. Like we got to go back and like, we got to level the coffee table and we got to like make sure that the the hinges are, you know, the door shuts properly and all that kind of stuff. It's a hundred percent got to be the most common issue because um, part of that is due to, um, and you, you were probably about to maybe touch on this, but drums, the entry point for playing drums is so much easier than any other instrument. Yep. Um, you know, you can hit a snare drum and it immediately sounds like a snare drum. 
Right. And in five minutes, I can have you counting, you know, kick on the one, snare on two, kick on the one and the three, snare on the two and four. All right, let's add some hi-hats. One and two and three and four. And, and then add the kick on the one and two. You know, like I can now get you're a drummer. anybody playing the drums. And they can play that same drum beat to any Beatles song or any modern pop song that all across the gamut. And right. that gives you this ability to go, dude, I'm off and running. I'm a drummer. And you can't do that with a guitar and a piano or anything like that. You can't mm-hmm. really – the majority of people can't just sit down and start figuring it out. It right. doesn't work that way. Right. You know? And I think um, that you can get by as a drummer sort of not honing all of these intricacies. A hundred percent. You know? Where if you play the violin, you're going to spend the first – I don't know. Like I don't play the violin. But like I imagine you spend the first couple months – Really, just going over these intricate finger fingerings, you know, yeah. placement. You're just building um, the technique to a point where it does not translate the same way when you're starting on drum set mm-hmm. uh, for most people. And I, I don't know why. For me, it it didn't click until my 20s. That uh, even though I was playing the drums, I I, I wasn't um, I wasn't able to um, play in a way of my you know my my favorite drummers mm-hmm. and you know when you go and you find that a lot of other drummers play other instruments that's another really important thing too um i think um, yeah do you play any but, do you play any other instruments um I, within the last year or two i've started looking at some um uh piano lessons mm-hmm. and a little bit of bass lessons um but uh I, I, the answer is no, um, but I am working on it because this is uh, an important thing that I realized a few years ago that some of my favorite drummers play other instruments, and I go, yeah, okay, there's a lot, there's a lot of a lot of drummers that play piano, and it's just mm-hmm. one because p- piano is a percussive instrument, and it's a lot easier because it's all laid out, you know, yeah. it's just there, and it's a lot easier to figure out instead of who wants to learn, you know, fingerings and scales and all that kind of stuff on a guitar, you know. <laughs> It's hard, man. That's why I play, that's why I play drums. I, I started as guitar, and I was like, mm, but but piano. I think um, I mean I played piano for nine years before I played drums, and uh, and it definitely it definitely helped. But I've I've definitely heard of a lot of stories of drummers who were like, uh, I needed to like work out some some rhythmic things or you know, separate my hands more. So they started playing piano. Mm-hmm. And then you have, Incredible. a. New, I mean, I think it, you know, it helps with rhythm and you have a newfound, you know, respect for what the piano player is playing and you start hearing things differently. Yeah. And hearing things different is, is a good thing. Cause you start thinking more like a music, you know, you start thinking more musically than mm-hmm. a drummer. And it's hard to separate the two when some people either have that or don't, but a lot of people just playing and counting and playing the beat to a song, even if the pattern that you're playing fits into what the rest of the musicians are playing, doesn't mean you're playing musically. Right. Um, and that's such a hard thing to define. It's like, you know, um, be so much easier if there was a way to, to, to describe it. Cause what you're talking about is music and yep. you're listening to music and it either has it or it doesn't. And chasing that, uh, intangible, is uh is 
it, it's weird in a discussion. It's it's it can be kind of get lost because yeah. you're trying to say something, but you know. Did you were you ever running into problems with like with your hands hurting or or fatigue or anything like that when you were playing live? I haven't. I've been fortunate no. that I haven't had any uh, playing related injuries or anything like that. Um, if anything, I found some. Um, issues when i switched to in-ears and this was years ago mm-hmm. but i was i was playing a lot louder a lot harder than i should have been playing and um i was cracking cymbals um really? regularly but i had never done before and that kind of uh you know real world feedback told me something was wrong and i was able mm-hmm. to make some changes along the way um and I'm still never 100% comfortable playing with in-ears, but I haven't had any injuries. Okay. Is that anything and, you've, you've been struggling well, with? The, the only reason why I asked that, years ago, I not years ago, but maybe six or seven years ago, I was going through the same thing where I was like, there's things I hear in my head and I can't get them out. And or like I would want to do something, but like I couldn't. I just physically, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was, I started playing harder and I started, I was like squeezing the stick. And then by the end of the night, my hand, like sometimes I couldn't even hold the drumstick in my hand because my hand was numb, mm-hmm. you know? And like, it would, it would hurt. Um, they can't see on the podcast, but it would hurt sort of like running up my thumb. And uh, so then I, you know, I got with a guy and he was like, you're, you know, you, you got to fix your technique and you're playing too loud and i just didn't i physically just didn't have what it, what i needed to like you know play these these uh like these combinations of singles and doubles basically mm-hmm. like that's all drumming is you know and uh so that's so i was like i guess out of out of uh i don't want to say out of frustration but there was something that was happening where i was just t- everything was tensing up and so yeah. I was like squeezing the sticks. Um, so, I, but I haven't had those issues lately. But it was all stemming from the same issue that you were having: is like not being able to play the things that I wanted to play, or like not be like I heard something in my head, so I would try to play it. But like physically, my hands didn't have the proper mechanics to play that kind of stuff. So uh-huh. you just sort of go into like this default, like clenching mode, sort of. Yeah, you know. So I'm glad you addressed it. You know, a lot I of did. people would have just kept, you know, going, but. Oh no, it was like, no, nah, there was, I was like, I either gotta, I gotta fix this or I'm not gonna be able to play anymore. And it didn't, it wasn't, the good news was it wasn't like a chronic thing where like the next day my hands would hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that, but it, during gigs, I was like, by the end of the night, I could barely hold on. Sometimes I couldn't hold the stick at all and I'd be playing with my left hand. Yeah, well, that's very lucky. I mean, some of these drumming-related injuries I've heard can be, you know, pretty rough to get over. Yeah, um, there's this is a, a weird story, and I and I might this might not be a hundred percent accurate, but uh, Steve Smith had an issue with his shoulder, and it was pretty like debilitating, from what I understand. And they were like, "You have to have surgery, and you know, you have to have all this stuff done." He was like, "I don't really want to do the surgery." And he changed his diet and started like eating gluten-free and like cut all these things out of his diet, went back to the doctor a few months later and they were like, we don't know what you did, but your arm is completely healed. No surgery, no nothing. And like I said, I don't, I don't know if this it's a hundred percent accurate. Like that's exactly Mm -hmm. how it went down. But I know that like him just cleaning up his diet, doing some, uh, like, 
meditating, cleaning up his diet and, and, uh, like some stretches and things like that. And it's, yeah, no, my, I, I don't doubt it. My wife's really big into that. You know, food is medicine. It is. It you is. Know, what you're putting into your body. It's a, yep. it's a whole new, uh, thing. There's so many, you know, cool books and podcasts about that, you know, that wasn't available when we were younger. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to like, if you're on the road and you're eating McDonald's and you're eating and you're drinking 10 beers every night. Exactly. Your body, that, your body's going to start, uh, start breaking down. So, uh, so let's talk about the new record a little bit. Talking about, um, what, what was the approach going into to this record? Was it any different than, than going into other records that you guys have recorded in the past? Yeah. Oh, big time different. Um, I think it sounds like it's brand new for us. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so in the past we've, um, almost every album we've done, we've done it the way almost all albums are made. You know, you, you write a song and then you maybe demo the song either mm-hmm. way you're rehearsing it with the band. And then before you go into the studio, you go into pre-production with a producer and you figure out, you know, the real the, the real details. So you're not wasting right. time and money once you get into the studio. So you've already done this all the way up to this point before you even get into the studio. And once you get into the studio, you can, you know, we've, we've had experiences from days to weeks to months. We've hold ourselves up for like three months in a studio and you're working on songs over and over and over again, trying to get the right performance, the right feel, uh, the right, just capture that magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then <laughs> even when you do that, there's still, an alternate ending or a radio edit. (laughs) So there's just, there's just so many different versions at this point. When you go back and you look at your iTunes library of all the MP3s you've recorded along the way from the basement demos. Yeah. 87 versions of this song. Oh my God. Um, Jeez, I can't, I'm just having like, that's so funny because this time we, we worked with some producers and songwriters where, in a lot of ways, the we've been working on the final version of the song from the very beginning. Nice. We just kind of took our time to kind of shape it into mm-hmm. it, the, the final, final version. But uh, there weren't all these different, you know, demos and ideas and this like that. Like basically, our approach was it's been five years since we've put out an album. A proper album. We, we did talk about that the band has put out two albums since we last spoke. But the first one is actually more of a, a greatest hits for us. We, we found mm-hmm. that it was uh, our 20-year anniversary. We wanted to celebrate that. And right. so we did have um, uh, two songs that were brand new attached mm-hmm. to that. But that was more of a celebration of, um, you know, I don't want to say best of, um, but it was a ce- celebration of the, you know, of – the quintessential OAR tracks, both live and studio versions. And it was a cool little moment, but Mm -hmm. it still didn't feel like a a, a brand new album. We've been dying to put new music out there. And so when we wanted to put new music out right now, we wanted it to feel absolutely brand new. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was the approach. And we, the biggest kind of, um, what's the word? Um, influence sonically was this young producer uh, named Pom Pom. And she's 
um, you know, in her young 20s. Mm-hmm. She grew up in Cincinnati. You know, she was in bands that were covering OAR. Really? And now she's writing and producing music on her laptop, kind of influenced by us, working with us to write an entire new album and giving her the freedom to create uh, new sounds and directions for for us to kind of push ourselves in a way that we weren't going to repeat something we've we've already done before. Mm-hmm. And it was um, a little bit of a leap of faith for some of the some of the some of us in the band that aren't as hands on in the writing process because when we go to record something we just go hey if i'm playing um guitar to this or if i'm playing drums to this track it's gonna feel like an oar song no matter no matter what right there's gonna be some kind of you know tangible vibe or feel or something like that Mm -hmm. um but like, let's not get carried away here. We can do whatever we want to do live. Let's make these songs feel like they're completely brand new um, because Mark's style of his lyrics and his voice are going to lead the charge mm-hmm. and we're going to support that and we're going to put out some songs that feel, um, you know, just feel fresh because if it's something that, um, if it's a song that like resonates with us, People tend to react much better to it than us trying to do something that we think people are going to like. Right. And then <clears throat> that maybe or maybe not liking it. Hey, do yourself a favor and check out Promark's Select Bounce Drumsticks. These sticks give players the ability to fine-tune their standard stick model to fit their playing style. Let me give you an example. If you play rock or country or metal, check out the forward balance. These are front-weighted and give you enhanced power and speed. If you are playing jazz or funk or gospel, then check out the rebound balance. These are rear-weighted and gives you more finesse and more agility. Plus, they're made by Promark, which you know you're going to get a quality product because they control the entire process from the forest to the finished drumstick. Plus, they're paired by pitch and by weight, so there's zero guesswork when you're grabbing that stick out of your stick bag. Do yourself a favor. Check them out by going to Promark.com. I have no doubt that as a drummer, you've had ringing in your ears. What you may not realize, though, is anytime you have ringing in your ears, that is permanent hearing loss. And it can happen from just playing drums at a low volume for a few minutes. Now, you have a couple options. You can get those foam earplugs, and they're made for construction workers and snoring spouses, and they're they're pretty ugly, and they don't really fit well. Or you can get Vibes high-fidelity earplugs. These are earplugs that are made specifically for musicians just to lower the decibels by 22 decibels so you get crystal clear clarity while protecting your ear plus they're one size fits all because they have a bunch of different tips that you can use they're washable they're reusable and they're super discreet so people aren't even going to know that you're using them they're great so great in fact they were even featured on shark tank the best part is i've teamed up with vibe so you can get a pair delivered right to your door for 20 bucks. All you have to do is go to discovervibes.com and use the promo code resource15. That's resource and the number one and the number five. You can spend a lot of money down the road on hearing aids and all that stuff, or you can get yourself a pair of vibes. Go to discovervibes.com, use the promo code resource15. That's resource15 and save your ears. 
I just read an article with uh, about Rob Thomas yesterday, and he just came out with a new record, and he was saying, like, a couple years ago, he was working on music that just didn't... He was like, I was putting out music that I thought other people would like, and I yeah. wasn't putting out music that, you know, that that was true to to myself and, and you know, true to, to the things that I've done in the past. How do you... And I and we're sort of talking about this right now, but how do you uh, how do you make sure because like you want people to like the music, obviously, right? So mm-hmm. and it's easy to listen to the radio and be like, oh, we should do something like that because we know that's what people like. And then you go into the studio and then you try to do it, and you're like, eh, it doesn't really sound like us, and it doesn't really sound as good as that thing that we just heard on the radio. So now we're just like posers, right? And you're like trying to create music. Not that I'm saying you guys did this, but like, you know, it happens in the studio a lot where yeah. you're like, and then, and then, you know, a year later, you just come back to like, let's just do what we do well. And everyone is going to like it because it's us and it can be a fresh approach, but it's still us, you know? Yeah. Um, so did you, I mean, how did you guys, how did you guys deal with that internally? Because I'm, there had to have been some, some like internal, like, I don't want to say arguments, but like I'm sure somebody's like, "No, we need to like sound like this new Bruno Mars song or something." And you guys are like, "Well, that doesn't sound like us." Yeah. Well, I mean, I like so our version of that example you said is is that like we'll we've been fortunate to have a shot at radio mm-hmm. for every one of our albums since "Love and Memories" was our right. single in like 2005, and then we had "Shattered," that was our you know our biggest radio song to date, and that was mm-hmm. in 2008. And we had a song that Heaven, which we really kind of went for a different approach sonically with mm-hmm. um, almost like hip hop tracking kind of, you know, the, right. starting to bring in, you know, the kind of trap beat, you know, hi-hats and kicks and snares and that stuff. It was a little ahead of its time, to be honest, when you go back and listen to it. But we looked at the radio charts and said, oh, my gosh, so like we're competing for a spot on the airwaves in between Bruno Mars, like you said, or like Katy Perry. So like, unless you have that absolute like breakout song, you know, of the year, um, you know, what can you do to, you know, kind of play along to that game a little bit. And I think we've done a good job of balancing that where our issue, this is what I was going to say. This is our, our version of that is now having too many songs on an album trying to do that because then what you have is a song that's trying to be a single, but it's not like an A-level song. It's a B-level song that kind of has the pop, hooky, radio-ish elements that doesn't ever get a shot at radio and knocks a more organically cool, traditional, vibey OAR song that our our long-term audience is wanting to hear, and it knocks that right. sl- you know spot off of the album, and so you're you're not uh, you're not uh, appeasing any of the. Right. You're not going to be getting new fans with it, and you're pissing off the old thing. Right. So, I think basically this time around, like we know that there's somewhat of an expectation, kind of more of like more or less a pressure, um, mm-hmm. because there's a standard that we hold ourselves to. And it's staying true to what we do. Right. And when you talk about that unintentionally, it does change the vibe because then you start like you like with the Rob Thomas example, you're trying to do something 
that you think other people will, will like. Right. And in our case, we're trying to stay true to what we do. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to do that, like it's it's weird. Like I don't know if, 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 if I've already stated my point, but it it just it changes the vibe unintentionally. Right. Whereas this point, it wasn't about that. It was about just following our muse, collaboration, making songs that we were proud of and excited to play live. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And that's all it was. And if it didn't sound brand new, it was not going to find a place on the album. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you have to, in my opinion, uh, you know, you have to stay fresh. You don't want to, the, the, I don't think the fans want to hear the same thing, right? They're like, oh, this just sounds like the last record that they put out. It's like yeah. all the same stuff, but just different a little bit, right? And But at the same time, yeah, you don't want to alienate people and they're like, who is this band? They sound like, they don't sound like OAR at all. And yeah. that's a, that's a tight, you know, that's, a, or that's a tough line to walk. I'm sure. Um, it is, but it's also a fun one because now yeah. that we're done talking about the studio versions, we have an entire freedom to go out and perform it however we want to. And that was going to be the next question is the, is the album just a means to an end, like to get to, to take these tunes and play them live? Because I always think of you as a live band. Thank you. Um, we we can do some really fun stuff live that um, – well, I, I want to go back and say you know, having a song on radio is important because it almost buys new life and eyeballs you know, yeah. onto the band on a level outside of our bubble. And our bubble is amazing because it's a loyal fan base mm-hmm. and – they have really continued to support us for 20 years. But like with anything we talked about earlier in the podcast, you want to get better at what you do. You want to continue to grow this thing. Right. And you can reach people through radio and other opportunities when you have a successful song, whether it, it's six streaming numbers you know, right, or right. YouTube or you get a placement somewhere. That's just not going to happen. If you are, you know, talking about album tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's that side of it. And then there's also the side about who's our fan base. What are we doing here? We're here for 20 years. Like, um, we can go and play a song for 15 minutes. If it's, you know, uh, if it's that, that's what it's called for. If that's what, you know, makes that live experience something that, uh, people will feel like, you know, they feel better when they come to the show to hear that. Right, right. Um, but then there's also people that know a song. And, you know, you want to honor the song and honor them by playing it the way they they know it. So we're not, um, you know, we don't improvise, you know, every single thing. I think it's fun to, to, to have flexibility there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a song like Shattered, you um, – for us has been a, a really important song in our career and you know we don't jam it out too much <laughs> right we, we play the song that you know you've, you've you've come to know and love hopefully yeah that's been that's always been my beef uh with a couple uh, i'm not going to name bands but a couple bands that i've gone to see where i'm like why don't you just sing it like it is on the record <laughs> like i don't need it's this this is like a completely different song <laughs> You know what I mean? It's sort of like, oh, 
I'm kind of like, man, you kind of duped me, and they, you know, you got me here with that yeah. these tunes, and then they're they sound completely different. I don't mind like alter like alternate endings and improving and all that kind of stuff, right? I think that's right. great. Like yeah. that's where moments that, in the song to get the crowd into it. Course, yes, I love and I love all that. I, I yeah. am totally um like I'm a I'm a uh, improviser uh, through and through, as you yeah. can tell by listening to the podcast. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that if you're like. I think if you have a huge hit, you should sing the chorus the way that it sounds on the record. You know, that everyone's, I mean, like the last, I think the last time I saw you, uh, was it the, when you guys were trained? Maybe that's the last time we saw each other. Yeah, um, it was in California, I think. Yeah. Mount Winery but, or not Mount Winery, Mountain. Mountain View, California, right? Yes. The, what's that place called? Uh, oh, it's like legendary. How are we both? Shoreline. Playing? Shoreline. Shoreline. You're right. Right. Uh, so, but like we were talking about how like Train has all these, has all these hits and like Pat sings them the way that they sound on the radio because that's what people are there to hear. And I think that, I think that you guys walk that line really well where like you said, you have a song like Shattered that is a, that's a big hit and you're like, we're going to play it the way that it's played. But then you have other songs that are like, weren't big radio hits like like crazy game of poker that's like it's huge within your fan base and you yeah. could probably do whatever you wanted with that tune and people would love it because it's like that to me is like a live song you know what i mean yeah and am and i making so, any sense here or am i just making rambling a total you're making total sense and that's <laughs> part of the reason why that song is still my favorite oar song to play i mean you would think we would get sick of it uh, right. but we don't because we're able to have that flexibility and keep it fresh by changing it up and um and we still do it in a way where it's going to be recognizable to the audience. We're right. not, we're not, you know, throwing something at you you've never heard before. But um, there's that, there's that balance of, of throwing it off. You know, where we like to Im- improv at heart, but it's not. It's um, you know, our influences are more about uh, Pearl Jam playing as a band, coming across with this passion, and and they jam, but they don't jam in the same sense that you think of when you're talking about jam bands. Right. Right. Yeah, you guys have always because you and I have talked about this before, but like we kind of came up in the same like the same circle, sort of like on the fringe of the of the jam band thing. I gotta find the poster. Like we played with you guys, and I forget when it was, but there's I still have a poster of like when we played together, like twenty some years ago or whatever, which is wild. But um, but we were sort of on the fringe like you and I understand it where it's like, we're going to improvise, but we're not going to, we're not fish. Right. You know, we're not going to play a 37 minute song with three words and then we'll just make up the rest. You know, <laughs> I love fish by the way. Yeah. It's like one of my favorite bands, but, uh, but yeah, OAR has to me has always been on that fringe too, where you're like, we're kind of like, we're like a rock band, but we improvise a little bit too, Yeah, which I like. Well, that's a good. I think that's how you guys should d- describe yourselves now. Eh, we're, we're like a, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's your elevator pitch. <laughs> I like it. Uh, so you guys are. When does the are you are you on the road? No, you're not on the road now. When's the tour start? The tour starts in June. In We've June. been doing a bunch of new album promo. So I have been busy. Um, been back and forth to New York a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been doing, you know, fun radio and, and, and some TV and things like that. Um, but we're gearing up for the summer tour that starts in June. Uh, and we play something like um, 48 or 49 shows. So we're we're going to be crossing the country and um, having a good old time. Nice. 
You know, I wouldn't, let me ask you one, one question. And this is about touring back in, from back in the day. When you guys, when you guys were growing from literally like being in your cars to getting a van, to getting a bus, to getting crew, to stage setups and all that stuff. And I've talked to a couple people about this and, and this is why I want to ask. What was what was the learning process there? Was it was it the management team that you had that understood how to do those things that taught you guys early on? Like I've literally had conversations with people where they're like, "We're getting ready to like, we need a bus and we don't know how to do it," or mm-hmm. like you know because they're they're either independent or whatever it is. What was that? What was that learning process that like that growing from sort of nothing to you know band or uh, bus and bigger venues? production, all that sort of yeah. stuff. Uh, it, 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 it was both, both that, I mean, everyone in the band is very hands-on. Mm-hmm. We've all been um, involved from a very um, early point in our career. Um, and it's also been a very slow but steady growth. Right. So that – I guess um, I would say the um, the fact that things didn't happen overnight gave us the um, the time to to um, to get more experienced in those right. things a little at a time, mm-hmm. which um, looking back on is a huge asset. Um, we were able to learn about each stage um, of touring, you know, the level of touring from going mm-hmm. from bars to clubs to theaters to even some arenas and most of our shows are outdoor sheds. Um, we didn't, it wasn't without growing pains, but right. a lot of it had to do with the fact that we were willing to work and that we had a great team around us from a very early point. Um, you know, there's two sides to it. I would say there's pre-management and post-management and pre-management was, um, just uh, having a little bit of business sense uh, innately. Uh, we saw that um, like when we showed up at Ohio State, and I may have told this story because I, uh, you know, in our past one, because I think it's mm-hmm. an important part of our story, but it, it tells a lot about us that um, we showed up at Ohio State um, because it was a huge music town. Uh, there was one of the biggest schools in the country, a great place to start the band, you know, like right, we right. were fresh out of high school. We picked Ohio state. Let's go, let's go. And we got there and we couldn't get booked anywhere. Nobody knew who we were. None of the promoters would book these young kids from out of town with no management, with no tour history, nothing. So, uh, we would throw our own parties around campus. We would get uh, noticed through, um, uh, Napster spreading our music online mm-hmm. and other, uh, House parties, fraternity parties, things like that started um, hiring us without any promoters or managers or agents. And we were building a, a fan base on campus. Um, and when we couldn't get booked in the venues, we would rent them out on nights that no bands were playing and sell tickets ourselves directly to, to the fans. Yeah. To fans on like we'd be out in the Oval, which is like the quad or something like that, another school. It's just literally for five or six bucks and we would sell out a, you know, 1500 place venue. And that's what got the promoters to say, Holy shit. Right. Okay. What am I missing here? 
And yep. as you can imagine, uh, they didn't let that happen too much longer. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was us being able to like look at like a roadblock and say, okay, well, we're going to make this happen one way or the other. Right. So that's the pre-management kind of stuff where you look back on and at the time you don't think about it, but I think it's an important thing to, you know, we weren't just jamming in the basement trying to get better, hoping that we would get a record deal or that a, you know, producer was going to be in the back of the bar or a manager or something like that and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and sign us and, you know, that kind of thing. It was Steve. uh, Do you know who Steve Rennie is? uh, I'm not sure. Not important, but uh, mm-hmm. he was uh, he found Incubus. He was like the, the VP at uh, Epic Records, I think, for a while. He was like the best way that you can, you know, the, or the the best way to try to get a record deal or to get management or anything like that is have a have a line around the building getting it to get into your show. Yeah, the minute you do that, people are going to start paying attention. If you got seven people there, he's like, figure out how you can get ten. If you got ten, yeah. figure out how you can get twenty. And he's like, yeah. if you bring people to shows you will get noticed and promoters and record labels and management companies and all the, and agents, they will, they, they'll, they'll call you. They oh, will definitely period. call you. A- end of story. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, so that, that's the sort of pre-management kind of mentality we had. And then there was the, the, once we got a manager, um, he started in basically in his basement, created a record label when we couldn't get signed. He created an independent label to make it look like we were bigger than we were, to make mm-hmm. it to basically get us a distribution deal because right. bands don't sign directly with, you know, uh, you know, this is at the time when there were still record stores. Right. But to get your music placed in Tower Records and Best Buys and all of that, we needed a distribution deal. So we right. created our own record label. Yeah, the re- um, people didn't realize that the record deal didn't really do anything. If you didn't have distribution, you were dead in the water. Yeah. Yeah. So there, you don't just set up an indie label. You don't just get distribution deals without having to do research. And we have, at that point, a lawyer that comes on that helps us navigate those waters. And as you're putting out music um, uh, in in a more, um, you know, just at any level, right? At that level of of with distribution, you're going to need. Um, like you're going to need to know about royalty rates. You're going to need to know right. about, um, uh, publishing is a mm-hmm. huge thing. Like, um, once we go out and we promote it and we start doing an actual tour as opposed to playing house parties, you know, we hired guys that we were friends with and right. that had initiative to figure out and ask questions with the bigger bands that we were maybe opening up for or the local promoters or things like that. And so it was all a very slow and steady thing to get to that next stage of having a record deal and having a full touring crew and everything like that. But it was Mm -hmm. that, that core of having, um, you know, management, uh, business management, a late, um, uh, uh, a lawyer and, you know, a band that was very hands-on, that I think allowed us to, to learn so much about every aspect of the industry without it being like, and it would have been so great too, <laughs> just to have one song go absolutely crazy. Right. And overnight you're, um, you know, I'm trying to think of an example of, of who's got like the biggest song in the world right now, but like, uh, Ariana Grande probably. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I think we, we tend to like, 
let these things get in the way where we're like, well, I don't know how to do that or I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to figure it out. If you were starting a business, you would have to figure all this stuff out too. Like you need a graphic designer or you need, you know, a person, an accountant or whatever. It's no different than a band. As you start to grow, you need, like you said, you need a lawyer, you need management, you need someone who understands royalties. You need someone who understands touring and, you know, how they can book you and how, how to route a tour and all these other, all these other things. But, but I don't, I love that, that you're saying how you guys just took the initiative to do it yourselves because most people can sit around and make excuses or, you know, wait for the phone to ring or wait for someone to knock on the door and be like, Hey, I'm going to make you guys a successful band. You haven't done anything, yeah. but no, and you you're right about cool. that point about having, um, uh, a line of people outside the venue. That really is an important thing because a lot of the time too, you, there's not much a manager or a label or anybody in the industry can do to make that happen. If you right. already have, a fire burning, they can fan the flames and make it happen, but they mm-hmm. can't light the fire. Right. They really can't. And yep. that's an important thing to know. For sure. So speaking of tour, uh, where should people go to see where you guys are touring to get tickets, all that kind of stuff? Well, all of these socials, we've got, um, you know, our website and we've been uh, doing a really great job of, of uh, coming up with some cool uh, VIP fan experiences. If anybody's mm-hmm. interested, we have sound check parties now. We have some side stage seating that you can come to. Nice. We have, you know, just fun meet and greets and, and photos and hangs and that kind of stuff where it comes with limited edition posters and things like that, too. Um but just for general information, you know, most of our stuff is easily available at uh, our website, liveoar.com. Um, you know, we've got Insta and Facebook and Twitter. Come come hang. Come check we it out. All, we got all of the internets. All the internets. <laughs> I love uh-huh. it. Chris, my man, thank you again for uh, for doing this. Always great to, to catch up with you. And I'll, I'll see where you guys are going to be in the world and see where I'll be in the same city or whatever and we'll hang. Thanks for having me back. Let's not of course, wait dude. two more albums. I want to. Well, I want to hang out with you more often. You know, these phones work both ways, buddy. You got it. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me. That was the one and only Chris Kulos, and you can find the show notes over there at drummersresource.com. And again, if you dig this podcast, do me a favor, leave a rating, leave a review. That gives me warm and fuzzy feelings inside. Plus, it lets other people know that this is a good podcast to check out. So do me a favor, leave a rating and review, and until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll uh, I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.